17 this morning. It's verses 10 through 15. And uh, if you don't have a a Bible to hand or on your phone, uh, it's on page 926 in the Bible there in the pew in front of you. Acts 10 verses, or Acts 17 verses 10 through 15. And God's word says this. The brothers immediately sent Paul and Silas away by night to Berea. And when they arrived, they went into the Jewish synagogue. Now these Jews were more noble than those in Thessalonica. They received the word with all eagerness, examining the scriptures daily to see if these things were so. Many of them therefore believed, with not a few Greek women of high standing as well as men. But when the Jews from Thessalonica heard that the word of God was proclaimed by Paul at Berea also, they came there too, agitating and stirring up the crowds. Then the brothers immediately sent Paul off on his way to the sea, but Silas and Timothy remained there. Those who conducted Paul brought him as far as Athens, and after receiving a command for Silas and Timothy to come to him as soon as possible, they departed. Please be seated. Let's pray one more time as we engage with God's word. Lord, we thank you for the privilege of being here. Thank you for all that we've gotten to do so far to acknowledge your greatness, to confess that you are the one who is the forgiving God and and to confess our sins before you. And we've already talked and sung about Jesus and his work. And now we're looking at your word and we pray that by your Holy Spirit you'd help us. Uh, Open our minds uh, to what is uh, said and taught by your, by your spirit, help us, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. Okay, so I, before, but some of you haven't. I've got a grandpa. My one grandpa, my dad's dad, he's a joker. He's always got, he always had something to laugh about. He, he was always having fun. My other grandpa was not humorless. He laughed a lot and he smiled a lot, but he, you can't laugh a lot on the farm. He was the Danish, uh, son of Danish immigrants. He was out on the farm. He was a farmer and he was, uh, he was a little more serious, but he wasn't stern. He was just a, a joker. And so as a little kid, I noticed one time that grandpa was missing half of his finger on his left hand. And we would look at that stubby finger and one time, I guess some cousins were there, maybe some of my mom's cousins who were a little older than me, but they were still kids. And, and one of us said, Grandpa, what happened to your finger? Why are you missing half of that finger? And this grandpa, maybe he'd told this a, a few times, but he wasn't the joker, and I was maybe five or six, and so I took him serious. He said it was cold one winter, and I wore gloves outside, and he said when I came in the house and I pulled my gloves off, my finger got stuck in my glove. And I just pulled it off. And the older kids, I think, laughed about that. Um, The younger kids, it went over their heads. Me, I took it literally. And all of my life, I just believed Grandpa had lost that finger, pulling the glove off. I, I didn't question it, didn't think about it much. And one time, I'm sitting in college, and I'd just taken a test. And I don't know why. All of a sudden, I said, wait a minute. Grandpa didn't lose his finger by pulling a glove off. I've believed that all my life. 
what was it? And I got up and called him, and it had been a farm accident or something like that, but I believed it all of my life. I believed it. I had heard it and just accepted it. It was just the standard thing in my mind. I would have died for that truth. I would have passed a lie detector test for that truth that wasn't true. Um, This week, we come to a passage. Some of you... um, maybe are hearing this for the first time, this this passage, and good for you. Some of us grew up on this passage about the Bereans, and some of us have heard it over and over again, and I came up against it. I thought this text would be a slam dunk. I knew how I would preach this. I knew what I would say. I knew everything about this passage already, because if you're a kid growing up like I grew up, And Mark and I have talked about this. Like Mark grew up, we heard so many things about this passage. Uh, If you go to your search engine and and type in Berean Church, you're going to find thousands and thousands of entries. Berean Baptist Church, Berean Christian Church, Berean Bible Church, Berean Sunday School class, Berean, Berean, Berean. Be like the Bereans. And I I was even uh, sending Brenda the title of the sermon before I even got into it. I was going to write the first fact checkers or something like that to make it relevant, you know. And these Bereans, they heard it and they checked it. And I had a couple of things that were uh, weighing on me, though, as I, as I, as I started this. Sermons that, that we heard, Mark and I, we've talked about this a couple of times. Um, uh, Mark and I have talked about when a sermon is preached, do you keep your Bible open or do you close it and, and, and listen? Um, Somebody with the old way would say, you keep your Bible open, you fact check, you make sure, even if it's the Apostle Paul, he can make a mistake, and you make sure you're checking on that, and you fact check every little thing. That's the way I heard it. And you're more noble than those other people if you do. And I just accepted that as the the same truth as Grandpa's finger coming off in the glove. But listen. Sometimes that sermon wasn't good for me. It was a mixed result for me as a teenager hearing over and over again, you've got to be like those Bereans. Overall, I think probably net positive. It made me see the importance of reading and knowing the word. That was emphasized. The heart was right there behind that. Helped me to have less of a hero worship of a preacher as celebrity. That was good. Net positive, it uh, made me uh, love the Bible more. But the negatives of that kind of preaching and that kind of application on this passage were this. There were times I didn't read the Bible as I should, I felt like. And then I heard that voice in my ears, you're not as noble as those other Christians. And there were times when I dove into the Bible. You're more noble than them because the Bible says you read the Bible and you're fact-checked. And it, it did some wrong things for me that were not gospel-oriented, that were almost works-oriented. Opened me up to a critical spirit. In some ways, it made me place myself above the Word and above the person delivering the Word. Made me the arbiter of, of supreme truth and put me in the place of the church. I listened to preaching as a critic and not with an air of submission. 
But for the most part, this was just a simplistic interpretation of the text. It stopped too soon in its examination of the entire context. And the one application that they gave, which was be attentive to the word, was almost like the low-hanging fruit, and they went on to the next thing. And I really thought that's what this sermon was going to be. But I remember those conversations that I've had um, in the past. I wrestled with the text a little bit. Um, conversation that Mark and I had a couple years ago. I knew that, that the standard, there was something there that I needed to think about that I was thinking about then. And this week I met with James on Thursday and I said, James here, I want to run this something by you. I want you to think. As, as a linguist, as I'm looking at the Greek text, I'm, 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 I'm wondering about this. And correct me if I'm you know, wrong, if you go back and, and look and, and see, I don't want to miss this at all as I look at the text. I started out, I was sitting under a, a shade tree in the car waiting for a family member to, to, to do something, and I was the, the taxi driver for that day. And I started to look at the text, and there's certain commentators that I look at and, and read. And this week, for whatever reason, I started with John Calvin. And I was reading what Calvin had to say about this text in his commentary. And he said this. He said, Luke, in, as he's writing Acts, he says, Luke returns again unto the men of Thessalonica. The remembrance of Christ might have been thought to have been buried by the departure of Paul, And surely it's a wonder that that small light which began to shine was not quite put out. He went on and on. I said, oh, I I must have typed in the wrong thing because this isn't about the Thessalonians. This is about the Bereans. I looked and no, Calvin is saying this was not the Bereans at all. This is the Thessalonians. And that put me on a track. And then Paula and I had some uh, dinner uh, later on in the week with the pastor from Southbury, the Baptist pastor. And I said, Brian, i got to tell you this. This is blowing my mind a little bit. I'm really wrestling with this. And he went and got his Bible, got the, got the text. We looked at the Greek together and, and all that, and he pushed back on some things, and I pushed back. And I'm going to tell you, if you've grown up hearing this text only that way, this is going to be different for you. If you're hearing it for the first time, good for you. Listen, and let's engage with this a little bit. Um, I want to make sure that we get this right. So look at, look at this. Um, not trying to be an iconoclast but, or anything and, and go against standard uh, with, with a good guy named, named Calvin on this. But if you look at the particulars of the text, this is a good opportunity for us to think about how we listen and engage with Scripture. This is important. For one, if anyone ever stands up in front of you and says, I have something brand new that no one has ever preached before. I've looked at the text and I've discovered something brand new. I would say, um, don't even wait for the, for the next verse. Get out the door. There is nothing brand new. There is teaching that's gone. I, I heard a guy one time, sat under a ministry, and the man was always wanting something brand new. Everybody says this, but I say this, uh, wanting to have something brand new. Uh, I'm telling you, this is not brand new. And when Brian was pushing back at me, that pastor, he says, so you're saying, I'm like, no, it's not me saying, it's me and John Calvin saying. (laughs) So I'm I'm, I'm leaning on this. And let's look at the text. 
but nobody has a brand new. That's where cults come from. Be careful with the brand new. Here's the Bible. Here's the thing. I'm not trying to do that. The other thing that we need to understand as we look at the text and, 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 and interpret Scripture, um, all texts of Scripture you have to look at and consider in context. Anybody can pull anything out. This happens in our own life. Uh, this happens with uh, politics on the news where somebody pulls out a sound bite and they can make somebody say the opposite of what they really said. And we take it and we assume. So take it in context. This five verses that we have this morning of Paul in Berea happen after Thessalonica, where we were last week, happened right before Athens, where we'll be next week. The context is basically how people uh, hear truth and gather truth. What is the basis of people's belief? How do they believe? So last week, if you remember, Paul took the scriptures. Three weeks he was in the synagogue. He took the scriptures. And what did he do with the scriptures? He told them. He reasoned with them. So he used logic, but he used the scriptures. Reasoned with them that Jesus had to be born, had to die, had to rise again. And his conclusion last week in in that text that we looked at, the conclusion was this in 17.4. This Jesus whom I proclaim to you is the Christ. Next week, when we gather again, we look at the text in Athens, he's there with people who don't have scriptures. They are thinking logically, philosophically, and he does not start with them from the scriptures. He starts with their philosophy. He says, I noticed there's a statue for the unknown God. I'm going to tell you who the unknown God is. He quotes their poets who say, in him we live and move and have our being. And he comes at it from that point, speaking the truth, but he comes at it, and his conclusion there is the same as it was with the Thessalonians. And that's this, that God commands all people everywhere to repent because he's fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he's appointed, and he's given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. So the same message approached from different ways, and the context of this about searching the scriptures is a follow-on to the Thessalonians. Thessalonians, in verse 10 and verse 14, if you'll take a look at it, um, the brothers immediately sent Paul away and saw us away by night to Berea. In verse 14, when things got a little hot again, the brothers immediately sent Paul off in his way to the sea. The context is the brothers. The context is the Thessalonians who brought Paul there to Berea. Berea was about 50 miles away. It'd be like uh, um, Paul's preaching in New York City. And all of a sudden, uh, there's, uh, there's some people converting to Christ, there's, there's uh, growth, there's pushback, and they need to get him out. They take him 50 miles away up to our neck of the woods. Let's say they take him up to New Milford, where I live. And he goes there. The context is the brothers who took him there. The Bible doesn't talk about the Berean people uh, there. It just says the brothers took him there. And the brothers who took him there, then it goes right into verse 11. It says, now these 
were more noble than those in Thessalonica because they received the word with all eagerness. Who's he talking about here? The Greek text does not say the Bereans. Okay? I dug, I looked, I wanted to say everything I'd heard all my life. I read my little textual commentary on the Greek New Testament to see if there was any disputed text or anything. It's talking, and I'm telling you, I I believe this, although I wouldn't disparage anybody. It's talking about how these Thessalonians who'd heard him for those three weeks continued in the word without him there. And they searched to see the scriptures. It's important for you to know if you're have a Bible translation in front of you. Uh, we, we, have, we read this verse 11. It says, Now these Jews were more noble than those in Thessalonica. But that word's not there. The word Jews is not there. It doesn't say these Jews. It says these were. We don't know who the people were that he's talking about. The translator put the word Jews in there to try to make it clear for us, but maybe the translator got it wrong. Read. Um, read. Read Tolstoy. You say, I'm reading Tolstoy's great book, War and Peace. And somebody who knows a little says, well, you're not really reading Tolstoy's book, War and Peace. You're reading a translation of Tolstoy's War and Peace. And I see some of these great works that were written in other languages, and they say, new translator. This is the same translator who translated this. Um, If I could, I'd read it in the original and get the context. We believe that the Bible is God's word, and this is boy, I don't want this to be this is not dry. I don't want it to be dry. We're going to get to practical applications, but you've got to understand this. God's word is true, and the theological term is God's word is true in the original autographs. We say the original autographs. If when you go to heaven, if there is such a place as a display that says the Bible, What translation is going to be there and what language? Well, I lobby for English, and it's going to be the English Standard Version. But it might not be. It might be Brazilian, uh, Portuguese language. It might be Mandarin. Everybody says, no, no, we have God's Word. We have wonderful men and women who've dedicated their lives to studying and to translate it. Got to vote for Hindi, maybe. I don't know. We've got that. We don't know. Up in heaven, though, the Bible is in the original autographs. Uh, If there is such a thing, we don't even know what's in heaven because we don't need the Bible. We have have our interaction with God up there. The Bible helps us here as we get there. But the original autographs, Paul's original letter to the Corinthians, to the Thessalonians. Otherwise, we translate we do our best. And you need to understand not all translations are equal. There's even a method of translating, and it's good. There's a philosophy, even as, and I'll speak to the English side of things. I took my Greek and Hebrew in school and, 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 and tried to learn and listen, um, and they told us about the various types of translations. Okay? So Paul wrote, wrote a letter to the Ephesians. You go to Ephesians 1. If you look at at, at it in the original Greek, that is 11 verses long. 
That is a long, winding sentence. That was his style of writing. Uh, A translation such as the New International Version would say, you know what, we want people to be able to read it in a language that they can understand, and so they want to make sure it's not an 11-verse sentence that rambles. They want to make it more, I don't know, Hemingway-esque or whatever with shorter sentences. And they want periods, and they want thoughts. Well, then you have to supply a subject or a verb to make it that way. And all of a sudden, you have to make a call on what it's saying. And so I would recommend, short of studying biblical Hebrew and Greek, it's, it's a great idea to have three or four different translations and look at them and say, how did they do this? Uh, we trust the good hearts and, and the intentions. We're not saying anybody was bad and evil in the way that they did this. But I'm telling you, in the, in the Greek It does not say these Jews or these Berean Jews were more noble. It said these were. And that is important. The NASB got it right when it just left it out. These were more noble-minded than those in Thessalonica. The NIV got it way wrong. It says now the Berean Jews were of more noble character than those in Thessalonica. And I want you to be open and consider because it does have a little bit to do with how we then live our our lives and understand the rest of the text that we're going to apply to our lives. Consider that this may not even be about the Bereans, but about these Thessalonians, these brothers. They joined Paul and Silas, it said, made up of Jewish people, devout Greeks, leading women. There were three weeks he was in the synagogue and he was opening the scriptures and they were hanging on each word and they were new believers to the point where they sided with him, to the point where when the mob surrounded their house and said, hey, get these guys out of here, they spirited him away. They paid their taxes, Jason and the others. They were believers to that point. And the brothers took him to this place in Berea. And the brothers came and got him when he got in uh, the same Uh, religious leaders came from Thessalonica to hassle him up there. What does it mean that it says they were more noble? What does it mean, more noble? Think of the connotations. If I say, boy, somebody is noble. I was thinking back, and I'm not going to recommend or disrecommend this movie. If you want to talk to me privately, I'll probably tell you, Watch it on TV, the, the version. But do you remember uh, in Ferris Bueller? Remember the actress, that woman that kept pulling the pencils out of her hair? She was great. And uh, the principal says, this guy, I'm going to get Ferris, I'm going to get him, the principal says, and she says he makes you look like a fool. And then she lists all these people, the motorheads, the geeks, the dweebs, all these people. And they all, she says, And they all think Ferris is a righteous dude. And the way she says righteous dude is so funny. Well, she's using the word righteous in a different way that we would use righteous. We would say the righteousness, uh, and we would talk about righteous here. Words can be used. Noble. Why was it translated noble? What's in the Greek? Uh, What did, did, did the original language say for noble? It says these were more noble than those because they searched the scriptures to see if it was true. That word 
is, and I've got a translator right in here because I don't have a program to put the Greek there. The word is, uh, it looks like if you saw it in English, you'd, you'd say, transliterated, you'd say it's Eugene's. So they were more like Eugene, but that's not what it means. Eugenis. We think of the word eugenics. These people were more noble eugenics. Eu is a um, preface in the Greek language for um, good. Think of our word euphoria. Or think of, you've heard enough about the gospel in Greek is euangelion, good news. Euangelion, good news. You, they were good, and then genus, uh, born, birth. We get our word eugenics from it. Genus, uh, genetics, uh, genes, um, those types of words. Genesis, the first book of the Bible, the beginning, genealogy, generation. He said these people, these, whether they are Bereans or whether they are Thessalonians, they were good birth. They were better birth. It was a good birth that they had. Why? Because they searched the scriptures daily to see if the things that Paul and Silas had been teaching were true. Good birth. So when the King James came along in those days, uh, with a, a, a semi-caste type of a system there in England, there was the nobility. And that's why they translated noble. So think about not so much nobility. Think about good birth. The New King James does something terrible with this word. It says fair-minded. That's reading into the text. Um, it doesn't have anything to do in the language with being fair-minded or not fair-minded, but they're trying to tell us that they were objective about the word. Um, stay engaged. I, I feel like I'm not doing a good enough. Stay with me on this. This is important. What the Bible is telling us about these people, they looked at the word. They were of good birth. Their birth was good because of, and it was proven because of the way they interacted with their scriptures. Um, This word, eugenis, only occurs three times in the New Testament. Once is here. The other time is Luke 19, 12, where Jesus said, a certain nobleman went into a far country to receive for himself a kingdom and then return. That's pretty cut and dry. The nobleman, the good birth, somebody of a standing. It occurs again in 1 Corinthians 1, 26. For consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. That's the word. And he's saying these people were noble birthed. They were eugenists. They were, there was something about them that, that drove them into the scriptures daily to see if these things were true. The 1599 Geneva Bible translated it this way. These were also more noble men than they which were at Thessalonica, which received the word with all readiness and searched the scriptures daily whether those things were so. And the footnote in that Bible is is saying there that the writer Luke is comparing the people from Thessalonica, the Jewish people there who had looked at their scriptures and had come comparing them with the religious leaders who would not come. And the comparison is between 
Thessalonians and Thessalonians. Good birth, noble birth. It's not talking about their own character. Pastor gets up and says, you do this and you're going to be better than the other people. Uh, That's works righteousness. The Bible says all of us are sinful. All of us fall short of the glory of God. We have this little app on our phone. It's the Audible app. We have some books. And I, I watch this, and when Paula does her gardening out there, she's on a, she's not even here right now. She's out with, uh, she's, she is uh, listening again to the Lord of the Rings. And it's good to hear that. But I'm watching, and, and, and somehow between the two of us, I'm listening to a, a biography of Stan Musial, the great St. Louis Cardinal. And, and between the two of us, uh, this week as we've driven back and forth, and mostly her, she's been out at work, a uh, hundred hours this week, we've, we've listened <laughs> Too audible to, 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 to the words. Um, comparing, and I just, I just, as we've, we compare. Well, I was so ready. I was. Let's get back to back to the to the notes. What do we know of how God views his children? You're not better, he says, for one or the other. And I don't even know where, where my brain was going with that. All of us are who are saved are saved on the basis of Christ's perfect holiness. We're equally with each other guilty, we're equally righteous. God doesn't say, Wow, I had to work extra hard to save him. And he doesn't say, Boy, it sure is hard work keeping her saved. I wish she was more like a Berean and less like a Thessalonian. God doesn't compare. What we take in, how we absorb, doesn't have anything to do with our character. Um, So we think the text, I think the text is not talking the way it was before, about uh, the way I've heard it all my life, about the Bereans who are better people, better Christians, better than others, because they looked at the word to fact check. That's not what it's saying. It's saying this, that they were born again. The the clue is in the word brothers in those texts. The clue is in the good birth. Uh, These people that came to the Lord in Thessalonica, they were from all walks of life. There were some who were religious people. They were in the synagogues. They were open to the, to, to the Old Testament scriptures. Paul came along and looked at the scriptures and said, here, this is about Jesus, this is about Jesus. They came to the Lord. Some were, um, it says, God-fearing, uh, God-fearing Greeks, Greek people. It says the women who were of high standing. It cut across all lines. Some, according to the world standards, were noble birthed. But God says, no, your birth in Christ, your new birth your new birth is the noble birth, the good birth. They were born again. And that's what made them look. These Thessalonians went back after taking Paul and they got together and they looked at the scriptures together. Understand, they didn't have Bibles in those days, right? They didn't have a Bible. What did they have? Scrolls in the synagogue. They didn't have a New Testament in those days. What did they have? 
They had the Old Testament scrolls in a synagogue. And they went back. And what had started in them, as Paul would later write, he who began a good work in you will be faithful to complete it. What had started in them, God continued as they looked at the word and grew in their faith, even without benefit of Paul there. They searched the scriptures. Can it really be true? Can it really be true that Christ is the Messiah? All they had was that Old Testament. Old Testament, that's boring stuff to some people. Old Testament, that just led into the New Testament, but the New Testament is where the action is, right? The New Testament is where uh, we see about Jesus and the cross. The New Testament is all this good stuff. Uh, Stick with the new, a lot of people say. Forget the old. Ignore the old. But that's not what... The Bible says. What does the Bible have to say about the Old Testament? That Jesus is there. A man named B.B. Warfield said this, The Old Testament is like a chamber richly furnished but dimly lighted. The introduction of light brings into it nothing which was not in it before, but it brings out into clearer view much of what was in it but was only dimly or even not at all perceived before. We love our Old Testament. We love our New Testament. It's all God's word. These brothers and sisters of ours that are referred to in this passage, maybe Bereans, I think Thessalonians, they initially heard that Christ was the Messiah and they got together in their synagogues and they searched that Old Testament and they saw Jesus there and they were strengthened in their faith there. Calvin's initial point that though Paul wasn't there with them after those three weeks, the God who started that work was their author and the finisher of their faith. The object encouragement of their search to see if these things were so. What things? Bible trivia? No. The things about Jesus, the person and work of Christ. They were looking for Jesus in the scriptures. And they weren't looking to fact check anybody. They were looking to strengthen their faith. So I'm looking at us and thinking about us. And I, I, I feel like I've absolutely butchered things. I've lost my train of thought. I've been, I spent so much time, I spent more time this week digging in the text, talking, wrestling around with this, and I was so ready. I, I don't want us to miss anything, so, so forget those notes. Listen to this. Here's, here's the summary of this. Here's what we need as a congregation. We don't need people saying, I'm a better Christian than somebody else because I know more Bible facts and trivia. I've been a pastor long enough and I've been in congregations long enough and every now and then there's that person that wants to come and talk uh, inside baseball, so to speak, with me and, and toss these things around and we talk about what we know and what the other... I don't like that. I, 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 like, I like baseball better since I stopped playing fantasy baseball. Now I enjoy the game and not who's, who to pick for my teams and, and all that stuff. Uh, the Bible, you read your Bible not to learn a bunch of little trivial facts to be smarter than the person in the pew next to you and to, to build you up in your pride. 
also. You read it together. We study and read together. These people, it's all plural. They went together. They couldn't go to their homes and go online and and click from translation to translation and chase things down like we can. They were together in a group and they were reading and they were contemplating God's word together. The Bible is all about together and learning and growing together. Read our Bibles together. Talk about our Bibles together. Have conversations with each other about how we're doing with the Lord. And then somebody is going to bring it back to the gospel and about Jesus and they're going to keep us. Uh, uh, They read and studied the Bible together for those things, for those good things. And so I would say to us, we need each other as we interact with God's word. And we need to be Christians as we interact with God's word. They were noble, they were good birth because they were born again. I've known people who've read the Bible. People read the Bible to find the flaws, quote-unquote, in it. These people read it a different way for a different reason, and God used his word to, prop, to, to help them out because they were reading it as Christians who were good birthed. Nicodemus, who was a religious leader in the time and knew a lot of scripture, came to Jesus, and he said to Jesus, uh, what must I do to be saved? And what did Jesus say to him? Essentially, he said, you must be good birth. You must be born again. That's biblical language. And these people, whether they were Thessalonians or Bereans, one thing about them, they were born again. They were good birthed. It's said of Joseph Stalin. His, Stalin's daughter asked somebody when he was dying, and it said that he knew the Gospels back and forward. He, he, somebody said he memorized all four Gospels. He was an altar boy in the Orthodox Church there when he was coming up through the ranks. And he allegedly, story says he spilled the communion wine when he was helping, and the priest said, you stupid boy, and that drove him against. And he spent his life helping persecute and kill Christians. And they say on his deathbed, his daughter testifies, he raised up and shook his fist at God. He knew the Bible in his head enough to despise the Bible and hate the Bible and hate Christians. You can read the Bible wrongly. The Bible means nothing if you're not good birth, if you're not born again. Jesus said, be born again. And Nicodemus, who knew all these same scriptures, he had his Old Testament, he said, what? Do I have to enter my mother's womb and start all over? Well, he... He was talking metaphorically to Jesus who was talking as a rabbi. They were talking metaphor. What he was saying is what? I have to scrap everything I know about the Bible and start over from from this point? And Jesus said yes. Uh, And he talked about the spirit and the wind. And he talked about about a conversion. And and maybe that's where you're at. You say, I've I've got this Bible and it means nothing to me. Uh, I've used it as motivational speaking. Uh, I've used it to... To, to, to help me out, but it's just a bunch of motivational cliches, and when I really need it, when I'm in the dark night of my soul, when I'm hurting, it means nothing. And I can say maybe it's a possibility that maybe because you're using the Bible as a crutch and not because you've been born again, 
and you're not seeing it that way. You're not looking at the Bible for who Christ is and what he did. Sometimes Paula says, what's your sermon about? And I go, about 30 minutes. What's the sermon about? What's the Bible about? About 66 chapters? No, the Bible is about this, the person and work of Jesus Christ. And as we dive in together as a congregation, reading together, looking at these things, examining who Jesus is and what he, what he did for us, all of a sudden that means something. That's where the, the Spirit takes us like he did these Thessalonians, and that equips us for the good days and the bad days. Don't apologize for studying this. I don't apologize for diving in and trying and in gripping. I don't know why I've been so disjointed this morning, but I am. But I can say this from the text, from the text, you must be born again. And the good birth is talking not about status socially. It's not talking about gender. It's not talking about race. It's not talking about any of these things that the world just wants to fight over and fight over and fight over. Born again is every one of us as a person coming to the Lord and saying, I'm a sinner in need of a Savior, and then diving into those scriptures for our proof that we've been saved, that we've been born again. Good birth. It's in Jesus Christ. It's Christ alone. Let's, let's pray and then go to the table. Lord, thank you so much for your word today. Lord, thank you for your Holy Spirit helping us as we look at this. Lord, I pray that you'd help us all to, to dive in, to, to be reassured that our lives are in your hands and that we've repented, that we've turned to you, that we've received forgiveness. We're Christians based on nothing that we've done, but on what you've done for us. Thank you for your salvation. Thank you for your table that we are approaching now. Thank you for Jesus Christ on the cross in our place. In his name we pray. Amen.